ओम नमो भगवते वासुदेवाय ओम नमो भगवते वासुदेवाय ओम नमो भगवते वासुदेवाय सो वर कंटिन्यूइंग द पास टाइम द स्टोरी ऑफ लॉर्ड शिवा एंड सती and daksha and so sati had uh, there was a big yagya a big sacrifice going on like a you know auspicious ceremony but also like a family affair and uh, everyone was all dressed up and sati wanted to go and lord shiva suggested to his wife that she should not go and uh, he didn't forbade her he just told her what's the best thing and she didn't listen to him you should always listen to your husband no <laughs> tell my wife that um and uh, so she went and she didn't like what she saw because although her her sisters and her mother greeted her uh with gifts and and embraces her father daksha ignored her and not only that but when she saw the setup in the yag in the sacrificial arena in the yagna she saw there was no place for her husband for lord shiva so she was doubly offended that her husband the great lord shiva was offended and that her father wouldn't speak to her so this is what she, this is what she said <laughs> the blessed goddess said lord shiva is the most beloved of all living entities he has no rival no one is very dear to him and no one is his enemy thank you no one but you could be envious of such a universal being who is free from all enmity what is uh who is the you daksha yes so she's chastising her own father because he's uh, because of these two reasons uh, she thought going there that she could uh convince him yeah and and make some you know of of her husband's exalted position lord shiva's position but um that didn't happen yet it happens a few chapters later <laughs> so verse number 12 twice born daksha uh a man like you can simply find fault in the qualities of others lord shiva however not only finds no faults with others qualities but if someone has a little good quality he magnifies it greatly Unfortunately, you have found fault with such a great soul. So there's a nice description of this um that uh that uh one of our great acharyas Srila Sridhar Swami he says that there are um he's commenting on this verse and he says that there's four different qualities of persons, four different kinds of people. The first one our um uh bhava dasha uh persons who are like daksha who are envious and see only bad even amid good so you know people like that you may have good and bad qualities but they only see the bad right it's kind of like uh you know the difference between a fly and a bee right a fly is attracted to the dirty things and a bee is attracted to flowers and honey and the good things so 
uh, do we want to be more like a bee or more like a fly? So then the next quality, Mahantas, they are, um, they see both the good and the bad in a person. They have, they have some discrimination, but they don't uh, note too much about the bad, right? They, they focus on the good. Then there's the Mahataras. They only accept the good and do not accept the faults in a person. And then the Mahatamas, they uh, not only do these, they not accept the faults, but they greatly magnify the good things in a person. So these are the different gradations, right? Um, so we, as much as practical, we should try to be like uh, the Mahatmas. They, great, they greatly magnify the smallest and most insignificant good qualities. So the devotee is, to, we're, we're meant to be tolerant towards uh, people's bad qualities and try to magnify their good qualities. Or the other example that Srila Prabhupada would sometimes gives is, is you take a, if there's a spark, you fan that spark. And eventually, um, you can turn into a flame. So even someone who doesn't have very many good qualities, you find something good in them. And uh, just like there's that story, I don't remember all the details, but it goes something like there was a, a a man who uh, went to, uh, so he passed away, and he was not a very well-liked person at all. So the priest at the, uh, at the ceremony, <clears throat> at the funeral, said, uh, you know, could someone speak something good about this person? And there was nothing. And the priest said, look, we're not leaving here until someone says something good about this person. Nothing. He said, I mean it. We're actually not going to leave here until someone says something good about this person. And in the back of the room, someone raises his hand and says, his brother was worse. <laughs> you know. So, <laughs> you know, you... Uh, but uh, anyway, um, this is uh, the, uh, the effort that we make. Of course... If someone, you know, we, we're not um, naive in this world, right? If, some, if someone says, uh, you know, can I borrow your credit card? We don't just say, oh, yes, well, we want to see the good in them. I'm sure they want to do something good. No, you know, we, we are careful. There are cheaters in this world and, and insincere people. And, but as, as a general policy to try to find the good in people and encourage that. As a matter of fact, one of the best ways... And you can learn this also with your children or grandchildren um, that uh, usually the best way to stop bad behavior in anyone is to emphasize the good behavior. Yeah? It's compared to uh, if you have a, Srila Prabhupada gives the example if you have a glass of ink and uh, if, you add, if you just constantly are adding milk to it, it goes from black to dark gray to gray to light gray and eventually it'll become milk-like, right? Um, so um, we're not just a mutual admiration society, but that's because that means you just, you may even say something good about someone's bad qualities, but rather you try to find something good in a person and fan that, especially in their devotion to Krishna, and fan that spark, right? You see a devotee, they come on, uh, it's just like, okay, so the... Uh, Example we sometimes give, so 
in, in the beginning of ISKCON, and even to this day, some devotees live in the ashram. Right, they live you know, right here on the property and they're expected to come to the whole, be here at Mangalarti at 4.30 in the morning and, and do basically what's asked of them because it's kind of a training in a, in a, in a renounced kind of life. Um, so the, the example here is given of someone who should be well situated, right? So if someone is living in the ashram and they come to the temple maybe three or four times a week, the tendency is that they only come three or four times a week. You know, what, 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 a, what a rascal, right? But if they were living out, if, but if they were adhikar, their eligibility, their nature, it would be to live outside and come to their temple. And if they came three or four times, we'd say, wow, Raghunandam Prabhu comes three or four times a week to the temple. That's fantastic. So it's the same <laughs> event, right? Coming three or four times, but depending on how one's situated. You had your hand up? Oh, okay. Yeah. Any comments or questions on this point? Yes. Hare Krishna. So again, the very good example of the practical application given from Ramayana, how Sanskriti, Prakriti, and Vikriti aspects are there. Lord Ram means how he is dealing with different personalities, uh, showing the Sanskriti, like the cultured way of you know showing, you know, identifying a little good quality and magnifying it. Mm. And even when he tells that you know Chaturmasi time when it was raining, he tells Lakshman that seems Sugri has forgotten. So Lakshmana says, I will kill him. He says, no, 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 just remind him that, uh-huh. you know, he has to fulfill the promise that he made. Right. And then when Vibhishan comes, again, he's showing the Sanskriti how to deal. One good quality, he has taken my shelter, I will give him yes, full protection. Yes, Vibhishan is a good example. And another example is when we, he goes to Lanka, out there, the Angad is sent to Ravans that if you ask for forgiveness, he's ready to forgive you. Yeah. So to the very last moment, he's very forgiving, very welcoming, and ready to embrace even his enemy, who has done bad. Jai Shri Ram. Jai Shri Ram. <laughs> so again, we should take example. Again, sometimes we become very impatient, right? And the tendency is sometimes to take away the service from the devotee just because he made a few faults. Mm-hmm. Uh, that we should be more patient. We, should be, we talk about tolerance, but sometimes I feel, I, in my observation, that we still need to work a lot, even myself, I have to work a lot on tolerance and have some patience and let the person who has been given the service to take the time to be able to do the service. Uh-huh. Thank Hare you. Krishna. Very good. Did you want to say something, Raghunan? Oh, anyone else? Okay, let's carry on. Uh, it is not wonderful for persons who have accepted the transient material body as the self to engage always in deride deriding great souls. Such envy on the part of materialistic persons is very good because that is the way they fall down. They are diminished by the dust of the feet of great personalities. And Prabhupada writes, everything depends on the strength of the recipient. For example, due to the scorching sunshine, many vegetables and flowers dry up and many grow luxuriously. Thus, it is the recipient that causes growth and dwindling. Similarly, mahiya sampada rajobishekam, the dust of the lotus feet of great personalities offers all good to the recipient, but that same dust can also do harm. Those who are offenders at the lotus feet of a great personality dry up. Their godly qualities diminish. A great soul may forgive offenses, but Krishna does not excuse offenses to the dust of the great soul's feet. 
just as one can tolerate the scorching sunshine on one's head, but cannot tolerate the scorching sun, uh, sunshine, uh, sunshine on one's feet. So, um, this is an uh, important instruction to uh, be very, the, the Shastra says again and again to be very careful about offending devotees. And we've given the, we've, we, we've given the example um, many times of why that is, right? That just like, you know, the, the, rich, the rich person, um, what can you uh, do to uh, make it his, his, or her, his or her favor? Uh, you can't buy them another Mercedes. They already have three of those or something like that. But if you take a 10-cent a candy and give it to their child and the child is happy, then the parent is so happy with you for pleasing their child. So similarly, uh, what can we offer Krishna? But um, if, we, if we please Krishna's devotees, then Krishna becomes so automatically so pleased, just like the, the rich person with their child. Uh, and similarly, if you went up to uh, a rich person and punched their child in the face or kicked some sand in them or something, you know, all hell's going to break loose, right? They, they're gonna, they probably... Uh, have connections with the uh, police department and you're in big trouble, right? So similarly, uh, Krishna doesn't take his offenses so seriously um, if someone says Krishna is fill in the blank. But if you say that about Krishna's devotees, then uh, just naturally, uh, because someone is very dear, then you, get, uh, you become upset with. So this is sometimes called the hati mata uh, uh, offense, right? The mad elephant. Right, so again, you can just, I, I think we talked about this a few weeks ago, if you ever, I don't know if anyone did it, if you go on YouTube and, uh, you know, type in something like out of control elephant and you just see they, they, can, they can toss uh, uh, Maruti van, especially the ones in India, I remember one was a Maruti van and they just pick it up and toss it, you know, they could just create havoc. So you can imagine putting a, uh, you have a beautiful uh, garden, right, like imagine if uh, anyone's ever been to the botanical gardens downtown near the uh, near the senate so if you could fit an elephant in there because <laughs> most of it's indoors and then you uh and then he or she went mad you could do the whole all that all that beautiful work and all the would be just a mess right so that's what happens to our spiritual life if we offend uh devotees uh, destroys the garden. And, and Jiva Goswami, one of our great teachers, he says that when we offend devotees, here's the, there's um, five obstacles to bhakti that result. One is crookedness. We become more crooked. Uh, faithless, attached to things that destroy our faith in Krishna. We become slack in devotional service. And we become proud in thinking ourselves devotionally advanced. So, we should avoid such things. And the way to overcome an offense is not to ask Krishna for forgiveness, but to ask the person we offended. I mean, that's, that's true even in, just in, mon in regular dealings in this world, right? If you offended someone, the best thing is to go up to them and make, uh, to say sincere apologies. It's very easy to say insincere apologies, but sincere apologies. Um, and we're going to find that later. In, um, Daksha is going to be relieved of his offenses later on in a few chapters from now, but not yet. Now he's going to still get the full brunt of his offenses.
Any thoughts on this? Yes, a microphone. There are situations in life where even if I know that I have committed an offense, it, it's difficult to bring myself up to own up to that and ask for forgiveness. The ego is too strong. Mm -hmm. So given such a situation, what would be the antidote for that? Um, usually that means we're a little we're a little too close to the situation and affected by our eyesight. So it's usually then, and then, then we rationalize. Remember I told you how to spell rationalize? For those who weren't here, uh, R-A-T-I-O-N-A-L hyphen L-I-E-S, rationalize. Um, so we, uh, we, we rationalize things. But if we talk to someone who, you know, a, a friend, a colleague, a trusted uh, individual, and explain the situation, they can see it usually more clearly because they're more detached from it. So uh, it's good to have uh, good friends. Who can, uh, and, and again, friends in this case should not be mutual admiration society. Oh, it's all right, just forget about it. No, we uh, should, part of being a friend is telling people uh, when they're about to drive off a cliff to put on the brakes and go in reverse. Yeah, is that all right? Okay. So, Sati continued, My dear father, you are committing the greatest offense by envying Lord Shiva, whose very name, consisting of two syllables, she and va, purifies one of all sinful activities. His order is never neglected. Lord Shiva is always pure, and no, and no one but you envies him. And um, I, just, I just highlighted this one sentence. Auspicious life begins from the point of spiritual identification. But there are still more duties. One has to understand one's relationship with the Supreme Soul. So this is just a simple point. It's making the progress from not being spiritual to understanding uh, our spiritual identification. I'm the soul, I'm not this body, right? I'm, I'm, I'm eternal, but that's not enough. The next step is what are my activities? What, is my what, what, what do I do as a soul? And that is uh, Krishna's eternal servant. So those are the steps. You know, ignorance of spiritual life, understanding we're spiritual, we're the soul, and then understanding what the soul's relationship to God is. So those progressions, it's good to keep in mind. Any thoughts? Okay. Now we have to read some translations. Uh, you are envious of Lord Shiva, who is a friend of all living entities within the three worlds. For the common man, he fulfills all desires, and because of their engagement in thinking of his lotus feet, he also blesses higher personalities who are seeking after Brahmananda. That's that middle one, Brahmananda, is the bliss of understanding that we're spiritual, Brahman, but beyond that is Krishnananda. Do you, do you think that greater, more respectful personalities than you, such as Lord Brahma, do not know this inauspicious person who goes under the name Lord Shiva? His associate, he associates with the demons in the crematorium. His locks of hair are scattered all over his body. He is garlanded with human skulls and smeared with ashes from the crematorium. But in spite of all these inauspicious qualities, 
Great personalities like Brahma honor him by accepting the flowers offered to his lotus feet and placing them with great respect on their heads. Sati continued, if one hears an irresponsible person blaspheming the master and controller of religion, one should block his ears and go away if unable to punish him. But if one is able to kill, then one should, for, one should by force cut out the blasphemer's tongue and kill the offender, and after that should give up his own life. Now, obviously, we shouldn't exactly do that. Um, but the point being made is how uh, detrimental to our spiritual progress it is when we hear someone speak ill of a devotee of Krishna or Lord Shiva or Krishna himself, things like that. And so best thing is if we can uh, philosophically defeat them. And next best thing is, uh, you know, as the song goes, hit the road, Jack. Uh, get out of town before sundown and just get away from their association. Therefore, I sh but of course, sati, to set an example, goes the extreme here. Right. Therefore, I shall no longer bear this unworthy body which has been received from you who have blasphemed Lord Shiva. If someone has taken food which is poisonous, the best treatment is to vomit. So, of course, we find out later in the story, just to give you coming attractions, that there's a whole, uh, there's a whole pastime behind this of Sati leaving her body, and it's all orchestrated in the, behind the scenes by the Supreme Lord. It is better to execute one's own duty uh, than to criticize others. Elevated transcendentalists may sometimes forego the rules and regulations of the Vedas since they do not need to follow them, just as the demigods travel in space whereas ordinary men travel on the surface of the earth. In the Vedas there are directions for two kinds of activities. Activities for those who are attached to material enjoyment and activities for those who are materially detached. In consideration of these two kinds of activities, there are two kinds of people who have different symptoms. If one wants to see two kinds of activities in one person, that is contradictory. But both kinds of activities may be neglected by a person who is transcendentally situated. So there's good things to do, there's bad things to do, and there's transcendental activities. You got that? You know, good is good. Walking old ladies across the street and, uh, or in the ancient Vedic times, uh, planting fruit trees along the path that people would walk so that, you know, they can, uh, uh, they can maintain their bodies nicely as they go on pilgrimage. Those are all, you know, good things. But transcendental things are things connected with, with Krishna. Right? Um, and we do see sometimes that uh, both activities, I think in our, own, in our own activities and especially in our own minds, we have two voices, right? The spiritual voice, the devotional voice, and the other voice. <laughs> the one that's, you know, looking out for number one, <laughs> right? Uh, and can be selfish and, uh, and greedy and lusty and angry and all those things. So we have both... Uh, Actually, it's, there's, a, there's some statement in the Shastra. I don't know if I get it exactly right, but you know, in one of the previous yugas, uh, the devotees and demons were, uh, or demoniac natures were on different planets, and then you know, different parts of the world, and now they're within the same person. <laughs> you know, so I think we all, 
we all know that. We, uh, what is that, that saying? Right? It's a Native American saying that there's two wolves within us and uh, which wolf comes out, which wolf wins? The one that we feed, right? So we should feed the uh, spiritual one, the, the good one, and starve the other one. Um, my dear father, the opulence we possess is impossible for either you or your flatterers to imagine. For persons who engage in fruitive activities by performing great sacrifices are confer, uh, concerned with satisfying their bodily necessities by the eating foodstuff offered as a sacrifice. So she comes from a, uh, besides being you know, the personification of the material energy and all those other things that sati is, and especially will be in her next life as parvati, Right, um, very very opulent situation, Daksha and everything. We can exhibit our opulences simply by desiring to do so. This can be achieved only by great personalities who have renounced self-realized souls. You are an offender at the lotus feet of Lord Shiva, and unfortunately, I have a body produced from yours. I am very much ashamed of our bodily relationship, and I condemn myself because my body is contaminated by a relationship with a person who is an offender at the lotus feet of the greatest personality. Because of our family relationship, when Lord Shiva addresses me as Dakshayani, Dakshayani uh, I at once become morose. Dakshayani means the daughter of Daksha. And my jolliness and my smile at once disappear. I feel very much sorry that my body, which is just like a bag, has been produced by you. I shall therefore give it up. So Maitreya is telling this whole story to Vidura, and he's, you know, everyone's got, you know, kind of on the edge of their seat. What's going to happen, right? Uh, and uh, by the way, it is interesting that uh, in traditional cultures, um, you're very much. Even by your, well, of course, we have this in our, our last names, right? Reflect our parental line, right? Um, but it was very much, you know, who you are in relationship to other people was very important, right? So, you know, because you, you, I don't think, you know, most of us, probably our spouses do not call us, uh, you know, oh, son of so-and-so, right? <laughs> or daughter of so-and-so. Although we see in Krishna that we know from uh, the Shastra that Krishna very much likes to be, uh, have names that are connected to his devotees, right? He doesn't like so much Ishwara and Paramatma, which describe his power, right? Uh, Parameshwara, but prefers, you know, Yashoda uh, Nandana, uh, Nandanandana, Devaki Nandana. Right, because those are uh, in relationship to his uh, his devotees. Right, yeah. So it's interesting, and th and that that culture has definitely gone away. Right, no, no one even calls us so much. You know, at work these days, it's it's become familiar, and people just call each other by their first names usually. Right, in, in how many years ago, Henry? Thirty years ago, at least. Right, people would say, you know, Mr. Sholkoff, something like that. Now it's just like, hey, Henry, how's it going? <laughs> You know, right? Even people, especially in, in the past, before uh, one would usually not call their supervisor or their boss, 
by their first names, you know, but now it's just everything's first name basis. Which is interesting because, you know, the last name is really the, the lineage, right? And people just, everything's so kind of a kitri. The lineages are so much a kitri in Kali Yuga that doesn't really say anything. Yeah. Although sometimes, yeah. Maitreya, uh, the, the sage, told Vidura, O annihilator of enemies, while thus speaking to her father in the arena of sacrifice, Sati sat, uh, sat down on the ground and faced north. Dressed in saffron garments, she sanctified herself with water and closed her eyes to absorb herself in the process of mystic yoga. Now, she was very powerful. She is very powerful. First of all, she sat in the required sitting posture, and then she carried the life air upwards and placed it in the position of equilibrium near the navel. Then she raised her life air mixed with intelligence to the heart, and then gradually towards the pulmonary passage and from there to between her eyebrows. Thus, in order to give up her body, which had been so respectfully and affectionately seated on the lap of Lord Shiva, who is worshipped by great sages and saints, Sati, due to anger towards her father, began to meditate on the fiery air within the body. Prabhupada writes, uh, this severe example by Sati is to be followed. One should be extreme, not to be followed that you commit Sati, right? But listen, one should be extremely careful about associating with persons who are not respectful to the higher authorities. It is instructed, therefore, in the Vedic literature that one should always be free from the association of atheists and non-devotees and should try to associate with devotees. For the association of a devotee, can, uh, one can be elevated to the platform of self-realization. This injunction is stressed in many places in Srimad Bhagavatam. If one wants to be liberated from the clutches of material existence, then one has to associate with great souls. And if one wants to continue one's material existential life, then one may associate with persons who are materialistic. Um, and then at the very end, of course, it is un this is the part about the pastime, right? Of course, it is understood that in her next life, she would take birth as the daughter of the Himalayas, Parvati, and then she would again accept Lord Shiva as her husband. Sati and Lord Shiva are eternally related. Even after she changes her body, their relationship is never broken. So this is part of a pastime. But it's, it is, uh, it, you know, we, we know this word sati, right, that, that, is ha that happens in India and has been totally corrupted, right? The idea, um, the original idea of, of, that, of a woman entering the fire um, of, her de of, her of her deceased husband, Right, is that the um, the fire of separation was more powerful, more painful than the actual physical fire? Now, I think if you ask any wife today, she would say, "Nah, it's not. <laughs> forget about that one." <laughs> right. But uh, but that was the idea, and the the most and Prabhupada has written about this in the Bhagavatam that this terrible thing that happens in India when women are forced to do this, which has happened, and I think in some places still happens. Right? I, you know, I don't read about it as much as I used to, but when I was living in India, I used to read about it. It's a terrible thing, awful uh, thing to do. Um, I would say if, if, if a woman can do what Sati did, and actually uh, without a match or a lighter or anything, uh, just by her mystic power, can do this, then okay. And besides that, 
not okay, <laughs> generally, you know, in this, in this, especially in the age of Kali. Right, but, you know, so this, we're going to find out later uh, that this was all, of course, a pastime. This is all, uh, or, or at least you could say orchestrating, uh, Krishna is orchestrating behind the scenes because there's so many lessons. We've talked about some of them already. There's so many instructions uh, to be gained from this whole uh, Daksha Yagya. Um, and we're hearing about some of them today. But here, we hear in this last part of this purport that, uh, you know, she had a, uh, they're eternally related, Lord Shiva and Sati slash Parvati. And, uh, you know, like that. So, so she was such a powerful person that she could um, burn her body just by her mystic strength. Uh, I don't think um, anyone in this room can do that. By my mystic strength, the only fire that happens is the fire of digestion, and I want to eat more prasadam. <laughs> That's the level of my mystic powers. <clears throat> Sati concentrated all her medita uh, meditation on the holy lotus feet of her husband, Lord Shiva, who is the supreme spiritual master of all the world. Thus she became completely cleansed of all taints of sin, and quit her body in a blazing fire by meditation on the fiery elements. When Sati annihilated her body in anger, uh, there was a tumultuous roar all over the universe. Why had Sati, the wife of the most respectable demigod, Lord Shiva, quit her body in such a manner? It was astonishing that Daksha, who is Prajapati, the maintainer of all living entities, was so disrespectful to his own daughter, Sati, who was not only chaste, but was also a great soul, that she gave up her body because of his neglect. Daksha, who was so hard-hearted that he is unworthy to be a brahmana, will gain extensive ill fame because of his offenses to his daughter, because of not having prevented her death, and because of his great envy of the Supreme Personality of Godhead. While people were talking amongst themselves about the wonderful voluntary death of Sati, the attendants who had come with her readily readied themselves to kill Daksha with their weapons. They came forward forcibly, but Brigumuni saw the danger and offering oblations into the southern side of the sacrificial fire immediately uttered mantric hymns from the Yajurveda by which the destroyers of yagnic performances could be killed immediately. When Brigumuni offered oblations in the fire, immediately many thousands of demigods named Vribhus uh, became manifest. All of them were powerful, having achieved strength from Soma, the moon. When the Vribhu, am I pronouncing that? Vribhus? Uh, demigods attacked the ghosts and Guyakshas with half-burned fuel from the Yagnik fire. All of these attendants of Sati fled in different directions and disappeared. This was possible simply because of Brahmatejas, Brahminical power. Thus end the Bhaktivedanta purports of the fourth canto, fourth chapter of the Srimad Bhagavatam, entitled Sati Quits Her Body. So, ready for the fifth chapter, uh, the next chapter? So, frustration of the sacrifice of Daksha. So, they do get back and mess up the Yagya. <laughs> so, Maitreya begins. And he says, when Lord Shiva heard from Narada that Sati, his wife, was now dead because of Prajapati Daksha's insult to her 
and that his soldiers had been driven away by the Ribu, uh, Ribu demigods, he became greatly angry. And this is the, uh, the little hint that this is uh, orchestrated by Krishna in the first sentence of the second paragraph. When Sati passed away giving up her body, the news was conveyed by Narada to Lord Shiva. Narada always carries the news of such events because he knows their import. So he, know, he knows the, uh, the secret uh, hidden instructions behind all of this. I, I thought that was important. So Nar, and you know, we know Narada is always kind of causing trouble like this, you know, right? But again, be, because of his devotion to Krishna, right? What, what was another example of Narada causing, uh, doing something like this? Kamsa. Kamsa. Speed up Krishna's appearance. Yeah, he tried to speed up Krishna's appearance by uh, saying any one of these children, right? Yeah, could be Krishna. Thus, Lord Shiva, being extremely angry, pressed his lips with his teeth and immediately snatched from his head a strand of hair which blazed like electricity or fire. He stood up at once, laughing like a madman, and dashed the hair to the ground. A fearful black demon as high as the sky and as bright as three suns combined was thereby created, his teeth very fearful and the hair on his head like burning fire. He had thousands of arms equipped with various weapons and he was garlanded with the heads of men. When the gigantic demon asked with folded hands, What shall I do, my lord? Lord Shiva, who was known as Bhutanatha, directly ordered, Because you are born from my body, you are the chief of all my associates. Therefore, kill Daksha and his soldiers at the sacrifice. Prabhupada writes, uh, very instructive for us. There is sometimes a competition between the mode of goodness and the mode of ignorance. That is the way of material existence. Even when one is situated in the mode of goodness, there is every possibility that his position will be mixed with or attacked by the mode of passion or ignorance. The quarrel between, and then a little later, the quarrel between Lord Shiva and Brigamuni centered around Prajapati Daksha is uh, this is a, the practical example of such competition between different qualitative modes of nature. So um, I, I was in New Brindavan this week uh, with a uh, uh, nice group of devotees, including uh, His Holiness um, Shivaram Maharaj. He flew in from Hungary for, the, uh, for our meetings. And he gave class one day, and the, one of the big takeaways from his class, it was a class about Varnashrama, um, was that we need to constantly endeavor, constantly endeavor to be in the mode of goodness. That, that it's, it's, an, it's an ongoing hour by hour, minute by minute, day by day effort. Of course, and beyond that, to be Krishna conscious, but um, because he said it's so easy for the modes of passion and ignorance to overcome us. Uh, he said it's just so natural for us to be attracted to those modes. So it... Uh, we can examine our lives and, and consider, you know, what, what the mode of goodness is. Is, is, uh, is our house neat and clean? Is our car neat and clean? Is our, um, is our schedule something that, that, for example, we know the mode of goodness is more prominent in the morning hours? So do we try to shift our taking rest earlier and getting up earlier kind of thing? And um, 
and especially, of course, the way we deal with others, right? Do we deal with others what just, um, in a tatik shiva karunika surida sarvadehinam, you know, tolerant way, as you were saying, tolerance and uh, merciful and, and kind-hearted and, and uh, you know, do we drive our car in a mode of passion or a mode of ignorance or a mode of goodness way, right? We all know the difference, right? Right, we know the difference. Uh, you know, even something like that, if you leave early enough so that you're not like weaving in and out and pressing the gas and, right, and all that sort of stuff. Um, so in so many different ways um, are we cultivating sattva guna in addition, to, of course, to Krishna consciousness. Yes, Manaji? So Prabhu, um, while doing, <clears throat> while serving Krishna, what would be some examples serving in the mode of Ignorance versus serving in the mode of goodness. Well, okay, so serving Krishna, we try to be in transcendence, right? Just doing it for his pleasure. Um, I'm trying to remember, what it, does anyone remember what the examples are of, of uh, Sattva Mishra Bhakti and Raja Mishra Bhakti? And, I mean, um, the examples that we give sometimes it's easy to, to um, relate to is, let's say, when we're reading some of Srila Prabhupada's books, and if we're fall, so that's a transcendental activity, right? But we're also falling asleep while we're reading, so that would mean that transcendental activity is influenced by the mode of ignorance. Or we're reading Srila Prabhupada's books and we've read three pages and we can't remember anything at all. Our mind was somewhere else. So that would be a transcendental activity, but influenced by the mode of passion. Um, the problem with the mode of goodness is. Um, that so it gives uh, knowledge, right? Knowledge, and, and the problem with that is we can become proud of our knowledge, and pride is the mode of passion. <laughs> so even very subtly or kind of more grossly, we can um, uh, see the different modes working upon us. So you know we may be doing our service in Krishna's service, but at the same time, you know, yelling at other devotees or, you know, or, you know, so we can, there's, there can be these different mixtures. Um, but the driving one strikes me because I see for myself, if, you know, if I'm, if I leave my, you know, if I have to go someplace and I leave my house at the last minute, then, you know, I become more in the mode of passion if I would actually leave early and like, you know, get there, uh, and then I could just, you know, not, I could drive the speed limit and not worry about getting a ticket and all that sort of stuff, and just be much more, uh, you know, peaceful. So we can just, we could, uh, so as we've talking about, spoken about so many times, you know, it's good to go up in the balcony and look down at our life and see how, uh, you know, it's just like, I think a good example of it is what right when we wake up in the morning, right? Because we're still very much, you know, the mode sleep is in the mode of ignorance, right? So, do we remain ignorant, or can we find ways to elevate our consciousness quite quickly after getting up? I think there's some ways you can, for example, um, in certain alarm clocks or using your phone, you can instead of meh, you know, waking up to that, you could actually wake up to the chanting of Hare Krishna or a Pravachan or something like that. Or uh, the, the, uh, the Vaishnava, Gordi Vaishnavas are instructed, right, that right when we wake up in the morning, we uh, call out the name of the deities, 
right? The first thing you do, you pay obeisance to Jai, Shishi Gornitai, Sitaram Lakshman Hanuman, Shishi Radha Madan Mohan Ki Jai. And there's even another prayer um, that we're suggested to pray. Jana, what is it? Jayate Jana Nivasa Deviki Janma Vadu, that beautiful verse about Krishna in his pastimes in Vrindavan. Um, so, so that's a good example, though, because we're in ignorance, right? Uh, and sleep, and how to kind of snap out of it quickly. And uh, that's why, you know, we take a shower right away when we wake up. You know, we, you know, we get put on clean cloth, uh, like that, chant Krishna's name. So, and our thoughts, with our thoughts, we can easily switch between different modes also. I mean, to be constantly aware <laughs> of that, to keep our thoughts really, you know, to not be in a distressful state or, yeah. you know, yeah. overly joyful or... That's right. Sama dhamma tatpo so chum, right? Krishna talks about the mode of goodness. The brahmana is in the mode of goodness, controls the mind, controls the senses. Like staying sober. Like, but it's Prabhupada, not easy. But no one Prabhupada said it was easy. stresses uh, so many times everywhere, staying sober and like dhir, yeah. uh, tolerant, sober. And it, you know, on one sense it's not easy, but in another sense, you know, Krishna is such a wonderful person and his pastimes are so nice. Um, but it takes some, it does take some, a peaceful mind to appreciate because Krishna's past, if you read Krishna book, you know, it's not as exciting, you could say, uh, it doesn't appeal to the mode of passion so much. If you really want, you know, in, interesting things in the mode of passion, you might watch the news or go on YouTube or whatever, right? Because you get all these cool things, you know, watch a TV show or a movie or whatever. But hearing Krishna's pastimes it becomes more attractive as our consciousness becomes more subtle and more uh, awake in the, awakened in the mode of goodness and transcendence. Right? And, then when, and then as Krishna reveals his pastimes more, we actually see the, the incredible subtlety and the incredible um, depth of his pastimes. Other thoughts on this? Yes. Uh, I was just going to say that one of the things in this can whole canto is actually about, you know, recognizing the modes and purifying ourselves of those anarthas. Mm. So, like, daksha specifically is like, uh, you know, doing some bhakti in the mode of ignorance, like violent, proud, you know, angry, and, you know, that kind. So, like, I was thinking just like having that meditation as we we're reading. Mm, that nice. how are the how are these different people reacting? Because Dhruva Maharaj later will read, and he is very much mode of passion. And then there's the um, I guess uh, Prithu Maharaj. Prithu Maharaj is mode of goodness. Mm -hmm. So it's like kind of nice to see how are they processing each thing and you know reacting to each thing and you know That's addressing. Nice. Yeah. Thank you. Nice. Other thoughts? Jiva. Hare Krishna. So, I was actually thinking about how we listen even Shivan Bhagavatam. We could be how sitting, in, how we listen to the class. Oh, okay. Because sometimes we could just be listening it for an entertainment, <laughs> completely ignoring the lessons, the philosophy. You know how we should practice in our life. And other times we could also be looking at it. Oh, you know, I'm so right, and the other person is so wrong. There's so many variations as people are listening to the same class, they could take different lessons, right. uh, different perceptions. 
That well, counts. everyone here is asleep, so. Oh. <laughs> no, everyone is awake except me. That's what I feel like sometimes. <laughs> and when I hear their comments, it makes me realize how you know realized personalities are here. But again, uh, even you know, sometimes in the beginning, I'm just trying to think of the early days when I was listening the same and reading the same material. I would th- read it and get a completely different message than constantly hearing. Hearing is so important. Hearing others, you know, conclusions, the Acharya's conclusions, Srila Prabhupada's purpose, they are so enlivening, you know, they, they help us get into the depth instead of just floating on the surface of nice. the water. Yeah. Hare Thank Krishna. You. Thank you. Shall we continue? Maitreya continued. That's what we're up to, right? No. Yes? My dear Vidura, this black person was the personified anger of the Supreme Personality. Could you imagine the personified anger of God? Ah! You wouldn't want to mess with that person, right? And he was prepared to execute the orders of Lord Shiva. Thus, considering himself capable of coping with any power offered against him, he circumambulated Lord Shiva. Many of the soldiers of Lord Shiva followed the fierce personality in a tumultuous uproar. He carried a great trident, fearful enough to kill even death. Can you imagine killing death? And on his legs he wore bangles, which seemed to roar. At that time all the persons assembled in the sacrificial arena, the priests, the chief of the sacrificial performance, and the brahmanas and their wives wondered where the darkness was coming from. Later they could understand that it was a dust storm and all of them were full of anxiety. Uh, Conjecturing on the origin of the storm, they said, there is no wind blowing and no cows are passing, nor is it possible that this dust storm could be raised by plunders, but uh, for there is still the strong King Barhi who would punish them. Where is this dust storm blowing from? Is the dissolution of the planet now to occur? Uh, Prasuti, the wife of Daksha, along with the other women assembled, became very anxious and said, This danger has been created by Daksha because of the death of Sati, who, even though completely innocent, quit her body as her sisters looked on. At the time of dissolution, Lord Shiva's hair is scattered and he pierces the rulers of the different directions with his trident. He laughs and dances proudly, scattering his their hands like flags as thunder scatters the clouds all over the world. The gigantic black man bared his his fearful teeth. By the movements of his brows, he scattered the luminaries all over the sky and he covered them with his strong piercing effulgence. Because of the uh, misbehavior of Daksha, even Lord Brahma, Daksha's father, could not have been saved from this great exhibition of anger. While all the people talked amongst themselves, Daksha saw dangerous omens from all sides, from the earth, from the sky. And uh, Prabhupada writes, I I found this very interesting. Prabhupada writes the last sentence of the purport. He said, because the the word Mahatma is used for Daksha. It's like, huh? Mahatma? Right? And Prabhupada writes, the word Mahatma uh, to describe the qualifications of Daksha is used sarcastically. So, uh, the point being that sometimes, you know, because if we just were to read that and didn't read that uh, last explanation, we might say, you know, what's going on? Because there's, sometimes there's things we don't necessarily capture, we don't understand in Shastra, or, cap, you know, bring some doubt. Um, and therefore, it's, sometimes it's important to see the big picture, 
right? Like, you know, that, why would Sati, who's, you know, basically the personification, the material energy, you know, why would she quit her body? Well, you know, there's a bigger picture of her becoming Parvati and again marrying Lord Shiva, you know, and all this. Uh, and so sometimes we'll read things and we'll scratch our head, um, but there's so many subtleties in the Shastra that we may not always uh, grasp. And usually if one, um, usually for our doubts, we can find either in Prabhupada's purports and the previous acharyas or a devotee's explanation as something that satisfies our doubts. My dear Vidura, all the followers of Lord Shiva surrounded the arena of the sacrifice. They were of short stature and were equipped with various kinds of weapons. Their bodies appeared to be like those of sharks, blackish and yellowish. They ran all around the sacrificial arena and thus began to create disturbances. Could you imagine if this like happened at a Sunday feast? Right, you know, like an hour from now. Uh, some of the soldiers pulled down the pillars which were supporting the pondal of sacrifice. Some of them entered the female quarters. Some began destroying the sacrificial arena and some entered the kitchen and the residential quarters. They broke all the pots made for use in the sacrifice, and some of them began to extinguish the sacrificial fire. Some tore down the boundary line of the sacrificial arena, and some passed urine on the arena. Some blocked the way of the fleeing sages. Some threatened the women assembled there. Some arrested the demigods who were fleeing the pandal. Mahiman, one of the followers of Lord Shiva, arrested Brigu and Virabhadra. The black demon arrested uh, Prajapati Daksha, another follower who was named uh, Chandesha arrested Pusha. Nandishwara arrested the demigod Paga. There was a continuous shower of stones and all the priests and other members assembled at the sacrifice were put into immense misery. For fear of their lives, they dispersed in various and different directions. Virabhadra tore off the mustache of Brigu who was offering the sacrificial oblations with his hands in the fire. Virabhadra immediately caught Bhaga, who had been moving his eyebrows during Daksha's cursing of Lord Shiva, and out of great anger, thrust him to the ground and forcibly put, put out his eyes. By the way, there's more to this later on. Some of it kind of changes. It gets pulled back a little bit. Just as Baladev knocked out the teeth of Dandavakra, the king of Kalinga, during the gambling match at the marriage ceremony of Aniruddha, Virabhadra knocked out the teeth of both Daksha, who had shown them while cursing Lord Shiva, and Pusha, who was smiling sympathetically, had also shown his teeth. Prabhupada writes, Now all of them, Daksha and the demigods Bhaga and Pusha and Brigamuni, were punished by the soldiers of Lord Shiva. But later, everything would come to a peaceful end. So Prabhupada's giving a little, you know, don't worry, it all works out in the end. So this spirit of fighting between one another, it was not exactly inimical. Interesting, huh? Because it sounds pretty inimical. Because everyone was so powerful and wanted to show his strength by Vedic mantra or mystic power, all these fighting skills were very elaborately exhibited by the different parties at the Daksha Yagya. So, you know, it's... Uh, it's a little difficult for us to relate to this because it just seems like, you know, a big brawl and, you know, um, in, in like we would have in this world. But despite all of this and Lord Shiva getting very angry and all these things, they were exalted personalities that were all involved in this. 
So it's, and at the same time, we learn instructions about avoid, like avoiding the mode of passion and ignorance, etc. Then Virabhadra, the giant personality, sat on the chest of Daksha and tried to separate his head from his body with sharp rep weapons, but was unsuccessful. He tried to cut the head of Daksha with hymns as well as weapons, but still it was hard to cut even the surface of the skin of Daksha's head. Thus Virabhadra was exceedingly bewildered. Then Virabhadra saw the wooden device in the sacrificial arena by which the animals were to have been killed. He took the opportunity of this facility to behead Daksha. And so again, we might say, ah, killing animals, I thought we were vegetarians. So Prabhupada writes, uh, on the whole, the animals thus sacrificed were not at all the losers. Some old animals would be sacrificed, but in exchange for their old bodies, they received other new bodies. That was the test of Vedic mantras. Uh, upon seeing the action of Virabhadra, the party of Lord Shiva was pleased and cried out joyfully, and all the Buddhas, ghosts, and demons that had come made a tumultuous sound. On the other hand, the Brahman is in charge of the sacrifice, cried out in, the gr in grief at the death of Daksha. Virabhadra then took the head with, and with great anger threw it into the southern side of the sacrificial fire, offering it as an oblation. In this way, the followers of Lord Shiva devastated all the arrangements for sacrifice after setting fire to the whole arena, they departed their master's abode, Kailash. Wow. Okay, no one fell asleep during that discussion. Okay, so we're on to the next chapter. Brahma satisfies Lord Shiva. Okay? So all the priests and other members of the sacrificial assembly and all the demigods having been defeated by the soldiers of Lord Shiva and injured by weapons like tridents and swords, approached Lord Brahma with great fear. After offering him obeisances, they began to speak in detail of all the events which had taken place. So this is also interesting, right? They didn't try to you know, create more weapons and get back at them, but they actually approached a higher authority. Both Lord Brahma and Vishnu had already knowing that such events would occur in the sacrificial arena of Daksha, and knowing beforehand they did not go to the sacrifice. So that, that's also a good lesson for us. We think going someplace is not going to be a good idea. Then don't go. Right? Simple as that. <laughs> Purport. As stated in the Bhagavad Gita, Vedaham samatitani vartamanani charjuna. The Lord says, I know everything that has happened in the past and is going to happen in the future. Lord Vishnu is omniscient, and he therefore knew what would happen at the Daksha sacrificial arena. Now we may read this and think, well, then everything's predestined. And, and uh, there's no free will, and, I, and, and whatever I do, I could just do whatever the modes of material nature to do, because it's already, Krishna already knows what's going to happen, so it's already, you know... Uh, no, that's not the case. We have our free will. We have our choices. Krishna may just be very smart and know what we're going to choose, but that's another thing. Still, he gives us that free will. And he reacts to our choices. Right? But we can't understand the vast intelligence of the Supreme Lord. But it's not that everything's just predetermined and therefore whatever at all. Otherwise, there wouldn't be Shastra to tell us, do this, don't do that. 
If you do this, you get this result. If you do that, you get that result. Right? But at least in this case, you know, it didn't, it, it was pretty, in one sense, it was pretty obvious that something bad was going to happen, especially when Satid decided to go. Because, you know. <clears throat> when Lord Brahma heard everything from the demigods and the members who had attended the sacrifice, he replied, you cannot be happy in executing a sacrifice if you blaspheme the great personality and therefore offend his lotus feet. You cannot have happiness in that way. You have excluded Lord Shiva from taking part in the sacrificial results and therefore you are all offenders at his lotus feet. Still, if you go without mental reservation, that's important, that means sincerely, uh, and surrender unto him and fall down at his lotus feet, he will be very pleased. Lord Brahma also advised them that Lord Shiva is so powerful that by his anger all the planets and their chief controllers can be destroyed immediately. So what, a, what to speak of a sacrificial arena? Also, he said, that Lord Shiva was especially sorry because he had recently lost his dear wife and was also very much afflicted by the unkind words of Daksha. Under the circumstances, Lord Brahma suggested it would behoove them to go at once and beg his pardon. Again, a lesson to us, if we've committed an offense against someone, try to clear it as soon as possible. Lord Brahma said that no one, not even himself, Indra, Indra, all the members assembled in the sacrificial arena, or all the sages could know how powerful Lord Shiva is. Under the circumstances, who would dare to commit an offense at his lotus feet. After thus instructing all the demigods, the pittas, uh, and the lords of the living entities, Lord Brahma took them with him and left for the abode of Lord Shiva known as Kailash Hill. And now the next nine verses, uh, or the next 14 verses describe that Kailash. So this is a really attractive place. The abode known as Kailash, is full of different herbs and vegetables, and it is sanctified by Vedic hymns and mystic yoga practice. Thus the, dem the residents of that abode are demigods by birth and have all mystic powers. Besides them, there are other living beings who are known as Kinaras, uh, Gandharvas, and are accompanied by their beautiful wives who are known as Apsaras, or angels. Kailash is full of mountains filled with all kinds of valuable jewels and minerals and surrounded by all varieties of valuable trees and plants. The top of the hill is nicely decorated by various types of deers. There are many waterfalls and on the mountains there are many beautiful caves in which the very beautiful wives of the mystics are found. On Kailash Hill there is always a rhythm rhythmical sound of the peacock's sweet vibrations and the bees humming. Cuckoos are always singing and other birds whisper among themselves. There are tall trees with straight branches that appear to call the sweet birds. And when herds of elephants pass through the hills, it appears that the Kailash Hill moves with them. When the waterfalls resound, it appears that Kailash Hill does also. The whole of Kailash Hill is decorated with variety, various kinds of trees, of which the following names may be mentioned. Mandara, Praja, Parijata, Sharala, Tamal, Tala, Kovidhara, Asana, Arjun, Amrajati, Kadamba, Duli Kadamba, Naga, 
Ponaga, Champaka, Patala, Ashok, Bakula, Kunda, and Kurabaka. The entire hill is decorated with such trees, which produce flowers with fragrant aromas. There are other trees which uh, also which decorate the hill, such as the golden lotus flower, the cinnamon tree, Malati, Kubja, uh, Kubja, Malika, and Madhavi. Kalash Hill is also decorated with such trees as Katak, jackfruit, Kulara, banyan trees, mm, plak, Plakshash, Grodas, uh, thank you, and trees producing asafoetida. Uh, also, there are trees of betel nuts and Burja Patra, as well as Raja Puga, blackberries, and similar other trees. There are mango trees, Priyala, uh, Priyala Maduka, and Inguda. Besides these, there are other trees like thin bamboos, uh, Kichaka, and varieties of other bamboos trees all decorate the track of Kailash Hill. There are different kinds of lotus flowers such as Kumuda, Utpala, and Satapatra. The forest also appears to be a decorated garden, and the small lakes are full of various kinds of birds who whisper very sweetly. There are many kinds of other animals like deers, monkeys, boars, lions, rikas, rikshas, uh, salyakas, forest cows, forest asses, tigers, small deer, buffalo, and many other animals who are fully enjoying their lives. There are varieties of deers such as um, karnatra, ekapada, um, ashvasya, vrika, and kashturi, the deer which bears musk. Besides the deer, there are many banana trees which decorate the small hillside lakes very nicely. There is a small lake named Alakananda in which Sati used to take her bath, and that lake is especially auspicious. All the demigods, after seeing the specific beauty of Kailash, were struck with wonder at the great opulence to be found there. Thus the demigods saw the wonderfully beautiful region known as Alaka in the forest known as Saugandika, which means full of fragrance. The forest is known as Shogandika because of its abundance of lotus flowers. They also saw the two rivers named Nanda and Alakananda. These two rivers are sanctified by the dust of the lotus feet of the Supreme Personality of Godhead, Govinda. My dear Shatta, Vidura, the celestial dam damsels come down to these rivers in their airplanes with their husbands. And after sexual enjoyment, they enter the water and enjoy sprinkling their husbands with water. In the purport towards the end, Prabhupada writes, Srila Naratam Das Thakur, a great acharya of the Gaudiya Vaishnava Sampradaya, advises us not to travel to different places of pilgrimage. Undoubtedly, it is troublesome to go from one place to another, but one who is intelligent to take shelter of the lotus feet of Govinda and thereby ought be automatically sanctified by the result of his pilgrimage. Anyone who is fixed in the service of Lord of the lotus feet of Govinda is called Tirtapada. He does not need to travel on various pilgrimages, for he can enjoy all the benefits of such travel simply by engaging in the service of the lotus feet of the Lord. Such a pure devotee who has implicit faith in the lotus feet of the Lord can create sacred places in, all part, in any part of the world where he decides to remain. Tirta Kurvanti Tirtani. The places are sanctified due to the presence of pure devotees. Any place automatically becomes a place of pilgrimage if either the Lord 
or his pure devotee remains or resides there. In other words, such a pure devotee who is engaged 100% in the service of the Lord can remain anywhere in the universe, and that part of the universe immediately becomes a sacred place where he can peacefully render service to the Lord as the Lord desires. So, um, the, it's, it's, it, it's a subtle point Naratam Das Thakur is saying, right? Um, obviously, we also know from Rupa Goswami that um, going to a place of pilgrimage is one of the five most potent items of bhakti, right? So how do you reconcile these two things? Um, first of all, this, the point that Naratam Das Thakur is saying in, is indirectly a glorification of the pure devotee, which is what Srila Prabhupada is mentioning in the subsequent uh, sentences, right? That a pure devotee is so powerful, they actually purify the holy places. And Tirti, Korvanti, Tirtani, that wherever they go, like Srila Prabhupada came here, and now this is a place of pilgrimage, and, and the deities are here. And, um, so they create that atmosphere wherever they go. I think I told this story, I'll just tell it briefly, that... Um, um, Burijan Prabhu had a lot of association with Srila Prabhupada in far-off corners of the world, like Hong, uh, China and um, Japan and Fiji, and uh, in, in the early days, places that did not have deity worship, um, did not have temples. Um, and so it wasn't until many years later that he actually uh, did a little Pujari service when he was in uh, Texas. And when he first time he went on the altar of Radha Kalachanji's, um, he felt something, a certain atmosphere. He said, where have I felt that before? And he said, oh, in the association of Srila Prabhupada. And so he, you know, so Srila Prabhupada, you know, that similar kind of uh, feeling of being with Krishna, being with the pure devotee. Uh, another point is that if one just goes to a holy place just to take bath, uh, in the holy places, but in the holy rivers, etc., but not to seek out the association of pure devotees, that is a uh, that is a um, misuse of the thousand uh, dollars it costs to fly there. <laughs> if, you, if you want to put it in financial terms, <laughs> you get some benefit. But that's the but so the I, the Naratam Das Thakur is emphasizing the association of devotees as the most potent way of becoming purified. Hmm? It's the, what is that in Bengali? It's the root of bhakti. So some thoughts on this? No? Okay. Yeah, I was just thinking about it because I was, uh, I'm, I was um, booking my flight to, uh, uh, to India. And actually, in doing it in advance, it's in uh, Thanksgiving time. But, you know, so I was thinking of uh, this point. But when we go to a holy place and we associate with the devotees there, um, then we become, you know, make, make great advancement in leaps and bounds. But even then, one has to uh, uh, associate properly and associate with the right people. You know, having lived in Vrindavan for 20 years, 
there's not it's not that everyone has a, a clear understanding of the Bhagavad Gita just because someone is dressed like a sadhu uh, one has to actually search out those who are actually following in the uh, parampara system after the damsels of the heavenly planets bathed in the water it uh, became yellowish and fragrant due to the kumkum from their bodies thus the elephants come to bathe there with their wives the she-elephants and they also drink the water although they are not thirsty so they're drinking it for purification the airplanes of the heavenly denizens are bedecked with pearls, gold, and many valuable jewels. They, have, they cost more than $1,000 then probably to fly in one of those planes. Could you imagine going on Air India and it was bedecked with jewels, gold, and valuable jewels? Instead you get, anyway. Yeah. Actually, I really appreciated Air India the other time because I flew on Air India and the, uh, I had three seats to myself and all the TV screens were broken. So I thought, I th I thought this is great. <laughs> I won't get distracted by, by that. <laughs> and then we took, uh, what's that? Um, Qatar and everything works like perfectly, you know, too bad, right? Yeah. Um, the heavenly denizens are compared to clouds in the sky decorated with occasional flashes of electric lighting. While traveling, the demigods passed over the forest known as Sogondika, which is full of varieties of flowers, fruits, and desire trees. While passing over the forest, they also saw the regions of uh, Yakshishwara. In that celestial forest, there were many birds whose necks were colored reddish and whose sweet sounds mixed with the humming of the bees. The lakes were abundantly decorated with crying swans as well as strong stemmed lotus flowers. And Prabhupada writes in the end of the purport, there are many paths and beautiful spots created by man on this planet earth, but none of them can surpass those of Kailash as they are described in these verses. Just like if you, uh, the, the fastest way to go to New Brindavan is actually to take Interstate 68, right? And if you go on 68, it's actually a very beautiful ride. Mm -hmm. There's so many mountains and, right, on the way and things like that. You've gone recently a few times, right? Um, so it's, it's, you know, um, there's, there's many beautiful places. I, I work with the National Park Service in my day job, and, of course, some of our national parks are just um, very beautiful. But they don't. They're not Kailash. <laughs> They're not Kailash. That's what Prabhupada says here. All these atmospheric influences unsettled the forest elephants who flocked together in the sandalwood forest, and the blowing winds agitated the minds of the damsels there for further sexual enjoyment. They also saw that the bathing ghats and their staircases were made of vaidurya money. Money means jewel. The water was full of lotus flowers. Passing by such lakes, the demigods reached a place there, uh, where there was a great banyan tree. That banyan tree was 800 miles high and its branches spread over 600 miles around. The tree cast a fine shade which permanently cooled the temperature, yet there was no noise of birds. The demigods saw Lord Shiva sitting under the tree, which was competent to give perfection to mystic yogis and deliver all people. 
As grave as time eternal, he appeared to have given up all anger. Isn't that nice? He appeared as grave as time eternal. What a nice metaphor. Lord Shiva sat there surrounded by saintly persons like Kuvera, the master of the Guyakshas, and the four Kumaras who were already liberated souls. Lord Shiva was grave and saintly, so he had good association. The demigod saw Lord Shiva situated in his perfection as the master of the senses, knowledge, fruit of activities, and the path of achieving perfection. He was a friend of the entire world, and by virtue of his full affection for everyone, he was very auspicious. He was seated on a deerskin and was practicing all forms of austerity. Because his body was smeared with ashes, he looked like an evening cloud. On his hair was a sign of a half moon, a symbolic representation. Mm, Prabhupada writes, Lord Shiva's symptoms of austerity are not exactly those of a Vaishnava. Lord Shiva is certainly the number one Vaishnava, but he exhibits a feature for a particular class of men who cannot follow Vaishnava principles. So he was so compassionate that he set different example for those who couldn't be like Vaishnavas. So what are some of our, what are our austerities? Waking up early in the morning? What? I couldn't hear. Oh, regulated principles. Yes, yes, the regulated principles. Right? What else? Fasting. Fasting on ekadasis. Reading Shastra, chanting, yes. Controlling the mind, controlling the senses. Yes. Uh, what is also, the, what's the austerity of speech? Reciting the shlokas, Vedas, speaking. Reciting the Vedas and... Speaking truthful, gentle, not offending others, yes. The austerity of the mind, to avoid anger, yes, so we have our austerities, but they're connected with Krishna's service. Um, yeah, Srila Prabhupada didn't necessarily like the austerities of, let's say, going on a hunger strike or something, if it's for political reasons rather than spiritual reasons. Okay, boy, we've read a lot today, isn't it? <laughs> you know, this is not, we usually don't go this quickly through the verses. Um, text 37. He was seated on a straw mattress and speaking to all present, including the great sage Narada, to whom he specifically spoke about the absolute truth. So Narada Muni was also there. It was a big party of Vaishnavas. <laughs> his left leg was placed on his right thigh and his left hand was placed on his left thigh. In his right hand, he held rudraksha beads. Thus, sitting, this sitting posture is called virasana. He sat in the virasana posture, and his fingers was in the mode of argument, which is what? It's, is it this? I think it's that. Yes, but then I, when I looked it up, I think it was this. Yeah. All the sages and demigods headed by Indra offered their respectful obeisances unto Lord Shiva with folded hands. Lord Shiva was dressed in saffron garments and absorbed in trance, thus appearing to be the foremost of all sages. 
Prabhupada writes in the purport towards the end, Lord Shiva, of course, does not engage in useless mental speculation. But as stated in the previous verse, he is always thoughtful regarding how to deliver the demons from their fallen condition of life. It is said that during the advent of Lord Chaitanya, Sadashiva appeared as Advaita Prabhu. And Advaita Prabhu's chief concern was to elevate the fallen conditioned souls to the platform of devotional service to the Lord Krishna. Since people were engaged in useless occupations which would continue their material existence, Lord Shiva, in the form of Lord Advaita, appealed to the Supreme Lord to appear as Lord Chaitanya to deliver these illusioned souls. Actually, Lord Chaitanya appeared at the request of Lord Advaita. Similarly, Lord Shiva has a uh, sampradaya, the Rudra sampradaya. That's the that sampradaya means uh, a chain of disciplic succession. He is always thinking about the deliverance of the fallen souls as exhibited by Lord Advaita Prabhu. So he is always, this is an advanced devotee, is always thinking compassionately. Lord Shiva's lotus feet were worshipped by both the demigods and demons. But still, in spite of his exalted position, as soon as he saw Lord Brahma was there among all the other demigods, he immediately stood up and offered him respect by bowing down, bowing down and touching his lotus feet. Jai Sisi Gornitai, Sita Ram, Lakshman Hanuman, Shishi Radhamadan Mohan. Just as Mamandev offered his respectful obeisances to Kasyapa Muni. All the sages who were sitting with Lord Shiva, such as Narada and others, also offered their respectful obeisances to Lord Brahma. After being so worshipped, Lord Brahma, smiling, began to speak to Lord Shiva. Lord Brahma said, My dear Lord Shiva, I know that you are the controller of the entire material manifestation. The combination father and mother of the cosmic manifestation and the supreme Brahman beside, beyond the cosmic manifestation as well. I know you in that way. My dear Lord, you create this cosmic manifestation, maintain it and annihilate it by expansion of your personality exactly as a spider creates, maintains and winds up its web. My dear Lord, your Lordship has introduced a system of sacrifices through the agency of Daksha. And thus one may derive the benefits of religious activities and economic development. Under your regulated principles, the institution of the four varnas and ashrams is respected. The Brahman is therefore vowed to follow the system strictly. O most auspicious Lord, you have a... Now one may have read that before and think, wait a second, is Lord Shiva the supreme? Right? He's the manifest... He's the... What does he say in previous... You create the cosmic manifestation, maintain it, annihilate it by the expansion of your personalities. And this becomes clarified in the next chapter, right, when Lord Vishnu appears. So everything's kind of relative, right? You think, oh, Lord Shiva, so, he, you know, he, so glorify him, but then Vishnu appears and everyone then becomes more glorious. So it's, uh, there's a gradation. O most auspicious Lord, you have ordained the heavenly planets, the supreme Vaikuntha planets, and the impersonal Brahman sphere as the respective destinations of the performers of auspicious activities. Similarly, for others who are miscreants, you have destined different kinds of hells, which are horrible and ghastly. 
Yet sometimes it is found that their destinations are just the opposite. It is very difficult to understand the cause of this. My dear Lord, devotees who have fully dedicated their lives unto your lotus feet certainly observe your presence as Paramatma in each and every being. And as, again, Lord Shiva's Paramatma? Uh, of course, he's considered like the Lord, right? Like milk and yogurt. And as such, they do not differentiate, differentiate between one living being and another. Uh, such persons treat all living entities equally. They never become they never become overwhelmed by anger like animals who can see nothing without differentiation. So let's end there. We actually have to read that purport. But we, we covered a lot today. Right? Uh, amazing amount. And we will uh, email the reading assignment for next week to y'all. Okay? So we are ending right on time. And uh, we'll see you all next week. Have a wonderful week. And we will continue the saga of Daksha, Lord Shiva, Lord Brahma, the demigods, and what's going to happen next. Hare Krishna.